Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's Sermon Podcast Series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. My name is Grace. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. Step 10. We continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 and 13 through 14. For once, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. But everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Grace. When was the last time that you felt so totally awake? really alert, not just overly caffeinated, but so aware, like you were just so awake and ready for the moment that you were in right then and there. When was the last time you felt like that, just completely awake? Have you got it? Some of you are still searching. Well, do your best, but turn and tell your neighbor, when was the last time you felt totally awake? Some of you are not awake right now. (laughs) You can keep figuring it out over lunch. Good job. As we continue to wake up, by the way, There is coffee in the cafe in the back. Amen. Entering into life in Christ, when we enter into new life in Christ, when we confess our sins and follow Jesus as Lord, it is like we are awakened. Like our soul wakes up. We yawn and stretch and and blink and squint into the light, we get out of our tomb-like bed and rise up to become the human beings that God has created us to be. Fully awake, alive to God's design for us. 
In this series, through the 12 steps, we've been talking about going on a journey of sanctification. And we've described that like the journey from life in the flesh to life in the spirit, if you remember this. Now, now if you've been with us in this series, you know that we're not just talking about uh, kind of spiritual, non-physical stuff, good, physical, flesh stuff, bad, right? Like that's not what we've been talking about. Instead, we are using this language that we find in scripture to describe life in the flesh as a life that's consumed with ego, right? This very self-centered life, a life that sometimes in the scripture, in the Christian tradition has been called the false self, a life where we need to control and be in control of everything at all times. But then when we move into life in the spirit, this is where we are restored in the image of God, who God has created us to be. We discover our true self in Christ and we're able to surrender. Instead of needing to control everything, we are actually able to hold loosely and to surrender, trusting in God for every breath that we take. And so we've been talking about this journey through the 12 steps is actually a journey that by the grace of God helps us leave that life in the flesh and take the journey to life in the spirit. Paul says, wake up. He says, wake up to life in the spirit. Don't just sleepily walk around in this life in the flesh. Wake up, children of light. Wake up and stay awake. During my college years uh, as a student, I uh, frequently would get a ride home on long breaks, uh, holidays, uh, from my then boyfriend, now husband, Tim Gaines. Thanks be to God. We, we went to school together, and my hometown was a four-hour drive north from our school. His hometown was a seven-hour drive north. So he passed through my hometown one way or another, and it worked out quite nicely. We got to spend all this time in the car together and a four-hour car ride together. That gives you time to get to know each other, learn something new, ask questions, get into a fight, and make up all before you stop for gas. (laughs) It was very convenient. So so we would take these car rides together, driving up I-5, up California. We'd take these car rides together, but because Southern California is the most congested traffic, maybe on the face of the planet, uh, we would wake up. Tim always wanted to leave at 4 o'clock in the morning. His choice, not mine. And so he would come and he'd pick me up at 4 o'clock in the morning so that we could get past all the craziness before traffic got really, really bad. So he'd he'd come and he'd pick me up. We would go and find uh, the biggest gas station coffee. I know some of you are coffee snobs, but on a road trip, gas station coffee. It just just feels right to me. So we'd go and I'd get my biggest gas station coffee that I could possibly get. I'd settle into the passenger seat in Tim's winter green Saturn that he called the poor man's Corvette. And I'd I'd settle into that bucket seat next to him, and and we were off. And those first couple hours, I was good, even when it was still dark out, because I had my coffee and my alarm had just gone off, and I was so excited to get home for the break and to have all of this time with my boyfriend. It was so great. So those first couple hours, I was awake. Like, I was alert. But then the coffee had worn off, and we talked about most of the things that we wanted to talk about, 
And after a while, you settle into the lull of the freeway. And there is that hum of the engine you've got going on. And it was really hard to stay awake. And I knew I needed to stay awake for Tim's sake because he'd gotten up early too. He needed somebody talking to him to keep him awake. So after a few of these rides with him, I discovered that uh, I could bring my sunglasses with me. And, and when the sun came up was usually when I was getting really sleepy and I would put my sunglasses on and I'd settle back into that bucket seat, just lean my head up and, and I'd ask him a question that I knew he could talk on for a long time. And I had all of just the right words that I could kind of say while I was half awake, half asleep, you know? Uh-huh. Really? Wow. <laughs> and, and we could get down the road for a pretty long stretch like that. And then he finally realized what I was doing, and he'd say, Shauna, you are not awake. You are, you are sleeping. I need you. I need your help. And I would say, babe, I'm sorry. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, <laughs> right? It was hard. In fact, sometimes it seemed almost impossible to stay awake on those long car rides. The passage that Pastor Grace read for us comes from the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's telling them, live as children of light, if you notice the language, he doesn't just say, live in the light, let the light shine on you, follow the light. <laughs> he says, you are light. You are the light that shines on the world around you, that helps you see things the way they really are. You are light, so stay awake. He says, wake up, O sleeper. Live lives that produce pleasing acts to the Lord, and when there are fruitless deeds of darkness, expose them. Don't hide them in darkness. I think Paul might be saying, take off your sunglasses. Blink around in the light until you can finally see clearly what God's calling you to do. Perhaps living in addiction is a bit like sleepwalking through life being trapped in really a nightmare, living in a kind of darkness that you don't know how to wake yourself up from. And it seems to me that the first nine steps that we've already been through in this 12 steps to recovery is like bringing a person back to consciousness that is trapped in this nightmare of addiction, waking them up to the nightmare around them and leading them into life. So let's review them quickly, whether you've been with us the whole journey or this is your first Sunday with us. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over sin and that our lives had become unmanageable, right? Wake up, you're asleep, you've got a problem. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We couldn't do this on our own. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, right? We took stock of all that we were working on. Step five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 
confession, right? We talked about this. Step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all of those defects. We weren't going to keep all the stuff from the yard sale in the house anymore. You remember that? Then step seven, we humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. We came to God with humility. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Ooh, that is the kind of list making we don't want to do, but is so important. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And Pastor Rebecca Bailey talked to you about that one just last week. And so then we look at these steps as this call to wake up to the painful reality of our powerlessness, to take a good look around and to step out of darkness and into light. But step 10 then, we continued to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And nothing will keep you awake quite like having a flashlight constantly scanning your own soul. And Paul knew it. So he pleaded with the believers to live as light because you are light, he says. And to the unbelievers, he says, hey, wake up. Wake up to life in Christ, to who God has created you to be. Why is it so hard to stay awake? Why is it so hard to not just be lulled back into sleep? It seems to me that as Christians today, we've got a pretty comfy car ride. You know what I mean? Like, we've got a pretty comfy ride through this world, especially here in Nashville. There is a church on every corner, Christian music and the radio, and sometimes being played on the street corners, preachers on TV, there's more books and Bible studies and podcasts than you could consume in a lifetime. And every third post I see on Instagram has a scripture verse attached to it. I mean, we've got a pretty comfy car ride. In fact, it is not uncommon for us to be driving down the freeway and to see billboards that have scripture references on them, right? Like, this is a very normal thing. So it was really interesting when the Tennessean wrote an article about a series of billboards that have been up around Nashville recently. And what you might not know is that those billboards were actually purchased by a member of our congregation named Zach Hunt. He's not here today, calling you out, Zach. Uh, you see, Zach had recently published a book called God Breathed, where he talks about the nature of Scripture. And, and his ploy, essentially, was to try to stir a lot of conversation and controversy around the book, hoping that it would wake people up to think, I want to know what that book has to say. And so he purchased three billboards around Nashville. Now, normally, when you drive past a billboard that has a Scripture reference, you almost don't even notice it. Am I right? It's like, oh yeah, God loves you, John 3.16, okay. Zach's billboards were a little bit different. <laughs> they, one of them said something like, it's okay to admit when the Bible is wrong with 1 Corinthians 13.12, which is a reference to the passage where it says we see everything now dimly, like we're looking in a, in a, in a dim mirror, right? Which another way to interpret that might be to say that it's okay to admit when we've seen the revelation of God's word wrong, but he's got a scripture verse attached to it, right? And so you're driving past and you see that billboard and you go, whoa, 
that's not the kind of Christian billboard I expected to see. And the Tennessean wrote an article about it because, let's just say, people woke up when they saw those billboards. They took notice, and he got a lot of angry, you know, social media posts and emails from people who noticed. And so whatever you might think about Zach's book or his social media presence, Zach accomplished exactly what he set out to do. He woke some people up who were driving past half asleep, half asleep in their faith and nodding along, saying things like, "Uh uh-huh, bless her heart, God is good all the time. (laughs) He, He certainly accomplished what he set out to do. You know, the early Christians had to wake up early, even to worship. In fact, the situation that they lived in, the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, they had to wake up early so that they could go and join in worship before anyone would see them. You might say they didn't have quite as comfy a car ride as we do today. In fact, uh, Pliny was a governor in Rome, and, and he writes this letter to the emperor who has given Pliny orders to kill Christians, to, to put them in prison and persecute them, and if they won't turn from their ways, to actually put them to death. And Pliny's writing back to the, the emperor to essentially ask for guidance because he's a little bit confused what these Christians are doing so wrong. And so he writes this uh, to the emperor. He says, They, meaning these Christians, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but to not commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Whenever this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Pliny is writing to describe what he sees these Christians doing, They're they're getting up early, before dawn even, so that they can sing to each other about Jesus and about life in Christ, about how to live as children of light. And they're not even allowed to do that, that simple act that they wake up early before the dawn so as to not disturb anybody. Maybe even waking up early before the dawn like Jesus' resurrection because that was seen as a political association. And we get mad when billboards don't post the scriptures we like best, right? I think the early church did not have the comfy car ride that we have these days. Perhaps, just perhaps, it's easy for us to lull our souls to sleep in a mundane and disenchanted world. We climb into the comfy car ride of a Christian culture where it feels like you can follow Jesus just by driving down the freeway. Sing a few songs about Jesus along with the radio. See a few Bible verses on the billboards as you pass by. Count the church steeples as you drive. 
and you never have to let the light of Christ be shed on your own soul to expose the things that are hidden in darkness. It's as if once we've asked Jesus to forgive our sins and we've begun this journey of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, that we're good. We can just sort of sleep on the car ride to glory, put on our sunglasses and nod along. We're surrounded by so much Christian culture that I wonder if sometimes it's put us to sleep, lulled our souls into boredom. And that's where we often, when we're in that sleep-like state, we slip back into patterns of addiction, addiction to pleasure or addiction to control, legalism or manipulation, denial, back into the sleepy life of the flesh. Step 10 is calling us to stay awake. It's asking us to stay awake by regularly taking inventory, living a life of examination where nothing is off limits to the Lord. We are always open to correction and ready for God to correct us when we need to be put back on track. Tish Harrison Warren writes this story uh, that her husband told her. She writes, once a student met with their professor to complain about having to read St. Augustine's Confessions. It's, it's a really old book written a super long time ago, but very important. Uh, to complain about having to read Augustine's Confessions. It's boring, the student whined. No, it's not boring, the professor responded. You're boring. What the professor meant was that when we gaze at the richness of the gospel and the church and find them dull and uninteresting, it is actually we who have been hallowed out. We've lost our capacity to see wonders where wonders really lie. Then she goes on to write, our addiction to stimulation, input and entertainment empties us out and makes us boring unable to embrace ordinary wonders of life in Christ. What she might be saying, in other words, it puts us to sleep, lulls us into this sleepy state of complacency. And then she goes on to tell this story about walking into the kitchen in a monastic community, a community of Christians that have committed their lives to this really intense pattern of following after Jesus. And, and when she walks into this kitchen, there's a sign above the kitchen that says, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. Amen? Amen? <laughs> right? Everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. Another way I might think about this is, Everybody wants to be on fire with Jesus. But not too many people want to do that work of constant inventory, searching, letting the light of Christ expose every dark corner of our heart. Taking regular inventory is like doing the dishes. If you don't do the dishes for long enough, your kitchen becomes unmanageable, which mine sometimes does. And if we don't take inventory on a regular basis, our life becomes unmanageable, completely overwhelmed in the clutter. This regular taking inventory keeps our soul awake 
and alive. There's so many different ways that you can have this practice of regular inventory in your life. In fact, see Pastor Steve afterwards too about some of the inventory practices that have been important for him. In fact, I know Grief Share meets Tuesday nights and that has been even a part of just the inventory of grief. Uh, Tuesday nights from six to eight, from six to eight, yeah? And then Wednesday night, there's a Let's Talk group that meets here at the church at 6.30. Those are great practices for inventory. But I just wanted to share with you what my personal practice of regular inventory has looked like. Just in case, it might be helpful for you as well. For the last almost five years, I've had this daily practice of sitting in silence, reading a passage of scripture, and then just sitting with it in silence, not having to come up with any eloquent words or explanation for it, but just sitting in silence with the word of God. And then I get out my prayer journal and I ask God these questions. Lord, show me where have I experienced faith, hope, and love. And I ask that because faith, hope, and love is what is listed in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says that when everything else has passed away, faith, hope, and love, these three things will remain. And so I ask God, Lord, show me in the last 24 hours, where have I experienced faith, hope, and love? And then I just write it down. I keep a record. I keep a journal so that I can go back over years and see the moments and places and spaces where I experienced faith, hope, and love. Another way of talking about that might be when I was fully awake and alive in Christ. But then I also take a moment and quiet to ask myself, where have I experienced fear, despair, pride, envy, and hatred? And I sit quietly with the Lord. Let the light of Christ shine in my heart. And I write those things down too. Taking inventory. The conversations, the spaces, the activities that I was participating in when I experienced fear, pride, hate, envy. And over time, it's helped me to learn to notice when I'm being tempted to live in fear and despair, when I'm becoming motivated by pride or envy. And then over time, I notice the things that bring me faith, hope, and love, and it helps me to keep my soul awake, to keep from falling back asleep, lulled into the mundane complacency of life in the flesh. And can I just tell you a little secret, just between me, you, and my prayer journal, over these five years of keeping an inventory of these things, do you know something? Not once have I ever recorded that I experienced faith, hope, or love while scrolling through my phone or seeing that somebody had liked something I posted on social media or reading something someone else posted on social media. Maybe it's different for you, but for me, I've just noticed that, that I've not really ever experienced faith, hope, and love while doing the scroll. You know what I mean? I have, however, experienced fear, pride, hate, a little bit, envy, So 
so over the years as I've taken notice of that, I've just realized that that's not something that needs to occupy a big space in my life. If it's not where I am experiencing faith, hope, and love, but instead I'm being driven by things like fear and envy, then that's just not something that I want to monopolize a big part of my life. Now, now that's been the journey for me, and it might be different for you. But I wouldn't know that had it not been for years of regularly taking that inventory, of becoming quicker to notice when I'm, I'm following wrong motivations. In fact, just recently, I recognized that a decision that I had made was out of a wrong motivation. It was motivated by fear, and in the process, it hurt someone who is a sibling in Christ. And it was actually when I was sitting down with my prayer journal and going over those things that I noticed, you know, man, I made that call, I made that decision, and my motivation was wrong. But I was able to quickly realize it and admit it, and then to go to that person and say, I need to confess something to you. I made this call quickly in haste, I made this decision, and I was wrong. My, vote, my motivation was fear, and it hurt you in the process, and I'm sorry. And that was a hard thing to do. It was a hard thing to do, but can I tell you, after that conversation, guess what happened? The world didn't end. I didn't lose my job or my credibility. My life didn't fall apart. In fact, I hope that it gave an opportunity for someone who I love very much to feel heard and seen and to even open up space in our Christian community for us to be able to practice what we preach. You see, life in the Spirit does not mean that you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you don't sometimes get things wrong. Life in the Spirit means that you are quick to admit it. You're quick to admit it when you get things wrong. And the more practice that you have, the easier it becomes. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The passage that we read, it points to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that enables us to wake up out of the sleep of sin and death, to wake up to be the person that God created you to be. And brothers and sisters, it would be such a shame to sleepwalk your way through the life that Christ died for. So wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. I want to give us a moment for you to just take some inventory. We're going to have just a couple moments in quiet as Brad continues to play. If you'd like to come and kneel at an altar here or right there where you're at, we're going to leave these questions on the screen and just give you a couple moments in quiet for you to take an inventory. Ask the Holy Spirit to draw you to where maybe in the last week you've experienced faith, hope, love, things that will not pass away when everything else has come and gone. And where have you experienced fear, pride, hate, or envy? Let's take a couple of minutes to let God direct your heart to these things.
Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m. followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.